to this edition of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. In this episode, I continue working through a backlog of papers that I have out on various theological and biblical topics, since many people have asked for audio versions of them. Now, since many of these papers are research papers, and the, the paper for this episode is a prime example, there are dozens and dozens of footnotes that would be helpful for anyone looking for citations or clarifications and expansions of some of the comments that I make therein. So uh, if you have any uh, questions about any of this or would like to see a little bit of the research, you should follow the link in the show notes to see the full paper uh, in, in its entirety. As always, if you appreciate the content of the show, please consider partnering with us by becoming a sponsor. You can do this by following the Become a Sponsor link in the blog or by finding the Freed Thinker podcast on patreon.com. If you aren't able to financially support the show, please consider giving a rating and a review of the show in iTunes. It helps us in search results. Also, listen at the end of the show for more information about the upcoming Mentionables conference coming up this May in Greensboro, North Carolina. Okay, what's on the docket for this episode? Well, how many times have you spoken with an atheist who throws out this verse from Psalm 137? Quote, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. End quote. Doesn't this mean that the Bible tells us that killing infants and brutal uh, bloodshed is a good thing? Well, in this episode, I present my research paper dealing with Psalm 137 and recommend a better approach to reading this passage than the rather flat reading of that atheistic objection. So let's dive right in with violence worthy of worship, how divine wrath prevents personal vengeance. Enjoy the show. Introduction. In his book, Exclusion and Embrace, Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf speaks of his experiences of violence and vengeance in the Balkans and how they relate to the Christian world and life view. Volf states something that likely will sound foreign to most of his Western readers when he writes, quote, My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. The only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. End quote. 
He then goes on to say that this sentiment, that violence is only permissible when it is carried out or commanded by God, and that we must believe it to be the, the, uh, the case for real human nonviolence to take hold of a society, does not play well with our pedestrian, liberal, Western sentimentality. And yet, declares Wolf, it is this belief that is at the very core of the Christian hope for a final reconciliation. This tension between the Christian ethic of love and self-sacrificial forgiveness on the one hand, and the all-too-conspicuous cry for brutal vengeance and bloody retribution on the other, has been a perennial predicament for the church in dealing with certain passages of the Bible. This problem is nowhere more poignant than in the maledictions found in the 137th Psalm and the other so-called imprecatory psalms. In this episode, the theme of divine vengeance and its legitimacy for the church will be addressed as we explore the setting and theology of Psalm 137 to discover why this psalm still has a place within the Christian canon. Psalm 137 is clearly related to the exile of the children of Israel after the Babylonian conquest of Israel. There is little doubt that its composition falls sometime after Jerusalem fell and the Israelites were carried off into captivity. The question is how long after the captivity until its composition? Was the author in the first generation that was dispossessed of their homeland while writing while in a foreign land? Or was he writing after returning home to find the land of his father in shambles? And what does the text tell us about the historical context and cultural milieu within which it was composed? Violence of Warfare One of the many horrors that resulted from ancient Near Eastern siege warfare was the destitution and starvation of the besieged people that would often result in the cannibalism of one's own family members or neighbors. In the vassal treaties of Irsaradadin, we read, quote, Just as the ewe is cut open and the flesh of its young placed in its mouth, so may he, Shamash, make you eat in your hunger the flesh of your brothers, your sons, and your daughters. Just as honey is sweet, so may the blood of your women, your sons, and daughters taste sweet in your mouth. Just as honeycomb is pierced through and through with holes, so many holes be pierced through and through in your flesh, the flesh of your women, your brothers, your sons and daughters, while you are alive. End quote. Yet there is more to the barbarism of ancient warfare than is often imagined. The practice of using infants as a tool to devastate an opposing nation or tribe was seemingly ubiquitous in the ancient Near East. The quote-unquote slaughter of the innocents was a means to effect total destruction on a people such that they would not even have descendants to follow after them. This practice can be observed to some extent in Pharaoh's killing of the firstborn of Israel prior to the Exodus in Exodus 1, 16 and 27. This, however, was not to effect total annihilation, but was a means of large-scale population control and was directed only at males. However, it does shed light on the established tactic of terminating the next generation to exert power over the current one. This practice was like an herbicide meant to direct an act of warfare against the root. Other examples from Israelite warfare can be seen in passages such as Hosea 13, 16, which reads, Samaria will be held guilty, 
for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword, their little ones will be dashed to pieces, and their pregnant women will be ripped open. End quote. Hosea here foretells the destruction that will befall Samaria and is not just speaking allegorically. Hosea was aware that in the combat tactics of the day, the killing of infants within the womb or without was something to be expected. Setting of Composition Allen, following the lead of numerous scholars, places the composition of the psalm not merely after the start of the Babylonian captivity, but well after it, likely after the some of the Jews had already been permitted by Cyrus to repopulate Israel. This position is partially based on the usage of the term there to describe his time in Babylon. For Allen and others, referring to his time in Babylon as there sets a measure of distance best understood by the psalmist not being there anymore. Allen also sees the fact that the psalmist can address Zion or Jerusalem directly as evidence that the city was a present reality for him, and thus he had to dwell in or around Jerusalem at the time that the rebuilding had begun or would soon begin under Nehemiah. Van Gimmeren also seems to agree and places the composition between the return to the land and the rebuilding of the temple, sometime between 520 and 445 BCE. This view may also be supported by the use of the perfect verbs in verses 1 through 3. We sat, wept, remembered, hung, and they required. This position seems unconvincing, however, as the evidence used to support it is ambiguous and best. The use of there will be, will be explored shortly as a literary device to show an inversion of a normal Song of Zion motif, and thus fits better in the literary purposive framework. The action of the taunting may have been in the past, even if the exile was still in effect, so to use the perfect tense verbs may also not be as helpful as one might think. In addition, the direct address to Zion in no way means that the psalmist is in the vicinity of Jerusalem. One could ask why the psalmist could be in Israel and address the rubble of Jerusalem before it was rebuilt, but not do the same while in exile in Babylon. It will also be demonstrated that the direct address of Zion or Jerusalem is a motif of songs of Zion, and so better serves that function over its use as an indicator of real location. In fact, there seems to be good reasons to place the composition of the Psalms sometime during the Babylonian captivity prior to the return of the land. As has been mentioned, most of the reasons for a post-return composition are better explained as literary features based on the kind of psalm it is, but there are also some conceptual features of the psalm that support the position as well. One aspect, aspect that all commentators perceive is the vividness of the psalm. In truth, it is precisely the level of vibrancy that has led so many commentators to protest to just how violent and possibly hateful it is. For these scholars, the intensity of the psalm is exactly what has led them to a negative evaluation of it. When we compare the psalm to other passages that deal with the promised destruction of Babylon, for example, Isaiah 13, 16, and Jeremiah 51, there is a stark contrast between their tones. Jeremiah has an intensity looking forward to the destruction and recompense due to Babylon in the future, 
but it is only the first-hand experience of violation and captivity, of violence and oppression that can muster the fury that drips from the pen of the psalmist, who blesses the one who will smash Babylonian infants against stones. It is hard to imagine someone a generation or more removed from the events still maintaining such vividness and animosity. One can also observe that the psalmist includes himself in the company of Israel, who was taken out of captivity, and then whose captors taunted them with demands for songs praising the once mighty Jerusalem. Likely, the psalmist was known for his musical aptitude, as well as those with him, and so a song was demanded of them directly. This would mean that he would have had been of such an age that his talents had not only been developed, but also were known. It is possible that then that he is one some kind of service to the temple prior to its demise and composed this song after having experienced the collapse of Jerusalem, the conquest of his people, and his own captivity into a foreign land. Finally, there is a question of why the prospect of forgetting Jerusalem would even be a possibility for him if he was already back in the land. The concern about forgetting the holy city and the temple of Yahweh looms large for a people in captivity in Babylon. Yet why would he need to vow to never forget if he was already back in the land? Notice that the psalmist does not vow to never forget again, that is, to not make the same mistake twice now that they have a fresh start back in the land. He vows to never forget. The plausible answer to this is that he was experiencing life away from the home he knew and the city and temple he loved, and though it lay in ruins hundreds of miles away, he called down curses upon himself should he forget it while he was estranged from it. The means that the most likely time and location for the composition of the psalm is sometime during the Babylonian captivity. Form A challenge related to the classification of Psalm 137 is discovered immediately upon reading the psalm. While much ink has been spilt trying to categorize the kind of psalm that it is, a neat and tidy taxonomical label for it appears unattainable. Gunkel remarked that it begins like a communal lament, progresses as a hymn, and then wraps up as a curse. However, what may appear prima facie to be an unruly structure which refuses to fit any known mold may actually be part of the psalmist's broader theological tenacity within which he uses unconventional methods to reinforce a theology of unparalleled circumstance. Day argues that the psalm is a communal lament that was sung, quote, from the context of the Babylonian exile, end quote, though no justification is given for his view. Van Gemmeren, following A.A. Anderson, agrees with Day, however, nuances his position by explaining that while the whole psalm does not fit the structure of a communal lament because verses 1 through 4, that it can be classified as such. There are features of the psalm as a whole that would support this kind of description of the psalmist's despair in verses 1 through 3, but also verses 5 through 6 can be read as an implicit pronouncement of trust, and verse 7 is obviously the beginning of an appeal for justice on any view, all features common to a communal lament. However, 
while classifying the psalm as a communal lament appears to be the most widely accepted position, it is not the only one. Rodriguez agrees with Krauss and Allen that it is likely a song of Zion. This view is also defended by Shatroff or and Kellerman, though there is still some discussion if it is a communal or individual song of Zion. Evidence for this position is plenty, with a major featuring major feature being its mention of Zion Jerusalem in five of its nine verses, that is, verse 1, 3, 5, 6, and 7, and its direct address of the holy city in verses 5 through 6. However, this particular song of Zion is peculiar because it is almost an exact contrast to the typical structure of a song of Zion. While the rest of the songs of Zion follow a loose outline of describing the sure foundations of Zion and Jerusalem, such as Psalm 46.4, 6-8, 12, 48.9, verses, uh, 48 verses 9, 13-15, uh, 80, Psalm 87, verse 3, Psalm 122, verse 2, and 6-9, Followed by statements, the psalmist praising the city or calling on the reader to do so, such as Psalm 84.3 and 12.9, and then reading with a beatitude for the righteous ones who worship there, such as Psalm 84.5, uh, 6, and 13, Psalm 137 inverts the structure. Firstly, rather than describing the sure foundation of Zion, the psalm begins with the destruction of the city and already having occurred and her people languishing under tormentors in exile. Secondly, instead of singing praises to Zion, the psalmist addresses Jerusalem only to say that he cannot sing a song to Zion because he is in a foreign land, though he he vows not to forget Jerusalem. Finally, in the place of the blessings for the children for the children of God who praises Yahweh and his holy city there is an imprecation against those who have devastated her in fact the beatitude that is given is not to the faithful israelite who worships in jerusalem but rather for the ones who meet out god's vengeance upon babylon for her destruction of israel Allen sees another possible reversal of the motif in that while songs of Zion normally described with imperfect verbs the Lord's victories over the enemies of Jerusalem, usually described by the adverb there, such as 48.7 and 76.4, in Psalm 137, the verb there is in Babylon after a brutal defeat where the psalmist can only remember Zion in verse 1. Kellerman sees a further reversal of the motif of the typical plea of self-innocence being inverted into a self-cursing formula should the psalmist forget Jerusalem in verses 5 through 6. However, Allen is critical as a piece of evidence for the view. The psalmist then was writing sometime following the fall of the holy city, an assault not just on his nation, his culture, his economy, and his own homeland, for he is now living in captivity in a foreign land, unable to properly worship Yahweh, but most importantly, it is a direct assault on Yahweh himself. The degree of tragedy of this state of affairs is hard to describe. It is possibly akin to waking, walking out of a bunker after a nuclear strike to find one's homeland in ruins just before being carted off as a prisoner of war across the border into a foreign city. The utter backwardness and chaos for the children of Abraham living in Babylon after the fall of Israel is perhaps being exemplified by the inverse structure and flip motifs of the psalm itself. 
This would add to the overall gravity and severity with which the psalmist was writing. Therefore, the reversal or destruction of the typical Song of Zion structure then seems to be an intentional decision by the psalmist, despite its causing a clear classification of the psalm to be a somewhat elusive exercise. It may be more proper or at least adequate to think of this as a dirge of Zion, where the normal song extolling the indefatigable foundation of Jerusalem has given way to grieving its fall while captive in a foreign land. Cultic Use Allen notes that the psalm would take on later cultic significance as it closed out the supplement to the songs of ascent, and thus may have found use as a processional song as a Jew started their climb up the mountain to Jerusalem. Allen here also observes that it was used in later Jewish traditions on the 9th of Av in a service to memorialize the destruction of Jerusalem, and thus may have originally been composed for such a cultic function. Given the considerations above, it is unlikely that this was composed after the return to the land to commemorate the events, but it may have been brought back home after the exile only to find its proper use in the cultic calendar. Structure The organization of the psalm is also somewhat disputed, although overall the three sections of four lines are easily identified. Kidner titles them Pathos, verses 1 through 3, Defiance, verses 4 through 6, and Imprecation, verses 7 through 9. Van Gimmeren calls them Lament, the Confession of Confidence, and the Prayer for Divine Intervention, but divides them in exactly the same way. What are noteworthy for this current paper are two features that help to develop the theme of this dirge of Zion. First, of all First of all, what should be noticed is that along each of these three sections, there is a distinctive shift in the subject of the verses. The reader should take note of this by tracking the personal pronouns. In 1 through 3, the action is experienced as a communal distress, and all the pronouns are in the first person plural. 1 through 4 is all experienced by us and we. Following this, the action moves to the first person singular for the second section with the psalmist calling down curses upon himself should he forget or fail to exalt Jerusalem. This section uses I and me throughout. The final section contains hardly any pronouns, but all of the action and participles are in reference to a third person speaking that is being spoken about. Of importance for our purposes here is the imprecation does not take on a tone of personal vendetta with the blessing for vengeance falling on I and we. Rather, in the imprecation, the blessed one who meets out Yahweh's vengeance on Babylon is left vague, and the psalmist does not make a we will avenge ourselves manner of statement. The importance of this will be explored further on. The other significant feature to notice is the lexical similarity between Psalm 137 and Jeremiah 51. In Psalm 137, the psalmist seems to have the utmost confidence that Yahweh will in fact bring destruction upon Babylon for what she has done to Israel and her people. Why can the psalmist be so sure of such a destructive end? The answer is found when we compare this psalm with Jeremiah's prophecies against Babylon and notice that the psalmist seems intimately aware of them. 
In Jeremiah 51.35, the people pronounce an imprecation on Babylon, saying, quote, May the violence done to our flesh be upon Babylon, end quote. And Yahweh responds by saying, quote, I will defend your cause and avenge you, end quote. This promise is rooted in his own wrathful statement in 51.22, where he says, quote, I shatter young man and maiden, end quote which is likely one of the reasons for the psalmist's mention of dashing infants to the rocks, though we will shortly see a more complete reason for such a statement. In fact, what is even more surprising is that almost every noun and verb in Psalm 137.8 is used first in Jeremiah 51. Once the psalmist is steeped in the promises given through Jeremiah, he then could be confident that Yahweh would be, bring a violent end to the violent Babylon because God had already vowed that he would. Jeremiah 51 also shows the irony that Babylon the destroyer would be destroyed, and so the psalmist does not merely say that Babylon will be de devastated, but can speak of it with such confidence that he can title them as, quote, Babylon, you devastated one, end quote, in verse 8, as if it has already occurred. For him, the destruction of Babylon is just as certain as if it had already transpired. Yet the abiding problem for the psalm is clearly the final line of the imprecation, that there is glory or blessing to be found in what appears to be a cruel and unjust brutality toward the most innocent of any people, its infants. While other imprecatory psalms appear to call down violence and seek revenge, they do so against violent men who are actively harming and oppressing the people of God. For many, that, help, that helpless infants are the subject of such wanton violence appears to place this psalm in a class of its own. The challenge is ornamented and made more cutting by its connection with other theological concepts such as divine inspiration and authority of the scriptures and indeed the omnibenevolence of God himself. For how can an all-good and all-loving God take any delight or see any cause as meritorious of the bashing of infants against the rocks? While the sentiment would be understandable, though some argue hardly decent or dignified, if we understood the text as the product of a thoroughly human authorship and experience merely expressing a human response to evil, what place does it have in the canon of a holy and loving God? After all, are we not to turn the other cheek and forgive seven times seventy times for they know not what they do? Evaluation of Interpretive Views Numerous patterns of interpretation and application have arisen through the centuries as the church has struggled to understand the role of imprecation in the canon. The views range from all-out denial of the, their inspiration to a full endorsement of their use in the worship of the church today. Several of these views will not be examined due to the space and as they are considered simply too far afield. However, the prominent views will be given consideration. A. Denial of the inspiration of the imprecations as mere human vindictiveness. According to this view, the psalmist may be personally committed to God and the defense of his name, but it is, in fact, estranged from his spirit and thus not worthy of a Christian ethic. 
This view is simply unacceptable to the Christian church as a possibility unless there is a desire to simply excuse whatever passages of Scripture do not decorously and without protest submit to the whims of an ever-changing sinful society. If this this option is on the table, then one is left wondering why we should desire to leave any negative statements, such as sin, within the pages of the redacted 21st century canon. How soon would the Song of Moses, the Song of Deborah, the Curses of the Prophets and of the Lamentations, and even the Woes of Jesus fall to the cutting room floor? B. Imprecations are inspired, but only to show authentic human emotion. This is the view of the Christian darling of scholarship, C.S. Lewis. He writes that these poems of cursing were written by, quote, ferocious, self-pitying, barbaric men, end quote. This view is pushed further by Webster, who writes, quote, Where these imprecatory psalms the language of more personal animosity to his foes, they would mark David as one of the most savage, profane, and cruel among men, end quote. However, besides the precariously diminished view of inspiration and canonicity, this position also misses the overall covenantal thrust of redemptive history, which will be explored below. C. Dispensational views of Psalms as belonging to Israel, but not the church. McLaren writes of the curses of the Psalms that, quote, the form of these maledictions belongs to the lower stages of revelation, end quote. Besides the problem with the dispensational schema overall and the bifurcation of the ethics of God between the dispensations, the failure of this view to be found within the pages of the Pentateuch. It cannot be said that the Old Testament saint was living under a different different ethic than the Christian when they were equally commanded, quote, If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under the load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help him with it. Exodus 23, 4-5 or later. Do not, quote, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. End quote. Leviticus 19, 18. In fact, the same Old Testament with the imprecations also has the endorsement of the ethics of Job when he says, quote, If I have rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came to him, I have not not allowed my mouth to sin by invoking a curse against their life. The psalmist would surely be familiar with the ethic of turning the other cheek and seeking the good of one's enemies endorsed throughout the Old Testament, and so these curses cannot simply be written off as a bygone ethic. D. The psalmist is using poetical exaggeration. This view has multiple components with one of the more inventive being that the received text is at many places missing a transitional verb, which would entail that the imprecation were actually on the lips of the enemy and not the psalmist himself. Declasa Walverd also affirms a version of this view when she writes, quote, Poetry is evocative, emotional, image-filled, and replete with hyperbole, and it cannot, must not, be read literally, end quote. For de Classe Walverde, the purpose of the imprecations is not to give a final appeal to a wrathful God, but rather is to lead us to introspection about the wrath and hatred in our own hearts 
and to, quote, suppress the primitive lust for violence in one's own heart by surrendering everything to God, end quote. As we will see presently, this view does not take into account the themes of the covenant and lex talionis, or the law of the tooth, uh, the law of the claw in the Bible. But here, it should also be asked what exactly is being said then by the curses. If the curse or swift and complete justice is not meant to be literal but symbolical or allegorical, what is it allegorical or symbolical about? This view appears to be guilty of splitting hairs while endorsing a distinction with no real difference, and if retribution does not entail real retribution, then this view may just be subsumed under the previous emotional one. E. Enemies are impersonal forces and not persons. Moenkel seems to have adopted this view to some extent when he listed the modern equivalents of the evil spirits, not as oppressive dictators or wicked men, but rather as, quote, dishonesty, impurity, selfishness, lovelessness, fear, bitterness, hatred, and the like, end quote. It, was recently, it has recently been endorsed by Rengren, who pointed out that many laments describe the enemies being verbally assaulted as, quote, wild beasts, demons, or mythological monsters, end quote. For Ringren, this means that the psalmist had forces that were more than human in mind. Like the others, this view may be possible in the case of some of the psalms, but it's hard to imagine how it would work with Psalm 137 considering the all-too-human infants included in the imprecation. So which of these views, if any, should the Christian accept as the most in line with the Jesus ethic taught to us in the Gospels? It will be helpful at this point to address three factors that assist in the interpretation and application of this passage for the church. That is, A, covenant, B, lex talionis, and C, divine vengeance. Covenant. When God entered into covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, he did so under the typical covenantal conventions of the time. This included all the structures of blessings and curses. Often we rejoice in the promise given to Abraham and what that means for the believer in Christ. Indeed, Paul expressly draws on the beauty of the promise and the assurance it provides for the one who trusts in Jesus. However, what thought is given to the equally certain promise that Yahweh would curse those who curse you? For workshop, the Psalms are actually literary expressions of the previous legal texts. He writes, quote, The curses are reflections of liturgical formulas. They pertain to the ritual of the covenant as it appears from the ancient litany of the twelve curses in Deuteronomy 27, end quote. The imprecations, then, can be seen as the response of the people to God via an appeal to his covenant fidelity. Yahweh promised that he would curse any people who cursed his people. That was not something that Israel invented for themselves to feel special, but was the direct revealed promise of God in his own words. It was his statement. Israel then was playing the vassal as they appealed to their suzerain to keep good on his pledge. Klein writes, quote, The Psalter's function in covenantal confessions suggests that it may be regarded as an extension of the vassal's ratification's response, which is found in certain biblical as well as extra-biblical covenants as part of the treaty texts, end quote. 
This is also supported by the fact that the blessings of the covenant are repeatedly celebrated in the Psalms. Quote, the cultic community expects and prays for blessings from Yahweh, end quote. We see the psalmist calling on God to bless his people in Psalm 3.8, 28.9, 29.11, verses 1, 6, and 7, 118, verse 26, 128, verse 5, 129, verse 8, and 134, verse 3, in addition to praising God for his loving kindness, a way of expressing his, his covenant fidelity, such as Psalm 105, 7 through 10, 117, verse 12, Psalm 119, 90, and the repeated refrain in Psalm 136. So the psalmists are seen repeatedly appealing to the blessings and the curses associated with Yahweh's covenant promises for Israel. Lex talionis. The principle on which the psalmist makes his appeal is not some violent or bloodthirsty need for revenge, but was rather the very marked and measured standard of retribution found throughout the Old Testament and formalized in the law, such as Exodus 21, 22-25, Leviticus 24, 17-20, and Deuteronomy 19, 16-21. This principle was not intended to provide justification for flights of fury and personal vendettas, but was actually put in place specifically to curb such excesses. It was established to set a standard of recompense where the punishment must fit the crime. While the principle of lex talionis was likely not applied literally in Israel in all cases, where the loss of life was involved, there is little doubt that a life-for-life system of justice was in operation. For the psalmist, then, the bloodshed caused by Babylon on such a large scale could only be rectified by the shedding of her blood to the same degree. She bashed the Israeli infants to the stones, and so the same must be done to them when they are overthrown. This was not revenge, this was justice. Thus the law of even and equal recompense underlies the whole psalm. Babylon will be scourged with her own whip and will suffer with the same horrors that she caused others to suffer under. One can think of the Lord's statement that those who live by the sword will die by the sword, a statement of the lex talionis if there ever was one. As revelation progressed, the tightening of the regulations away from personal vendetta toward more judicial and governmental settings can be observed. Retaliation became more explicitly condemned and prohibited. For example, in Proverbs we find, quote, Do not say, just as he did to me, so I will do to him. I will pay that man back for what he has done, end quote. We see this in Proverbs 24:29 and a cross-reference in 20:22. For the psalmist, the cry for vengeance against Babylon and Edom were not wanting evil to befall her neighbors such that Israel could prosper and gain land or power or some other benefit. Rather, it was that justice must be turned back on Babylon for her violent ways and to Edom for encouraging her to go even further. This would have been viewed as a punishment commensurate with the crime that was perpetuated, meted out by a rightful authority, Yahweh himself. Such views of justice should cause the church to pause and wonder what the proper response is to the manifestations of evil experienced in the Sudan, for example, where Christians experience widespread rape, murder, mutilation, and enslavement. 
Do we think that our human sense of justice is somehow more elevated than Yahweh's? Divine Vengeance Ancient Near Eastern views of recompense were also very this-worldly, in that they held that if justice was going to happen, it would happen within this life. If God was going to deal with Babylon, he would do so in the courts of heaven, but by toppling them through the might of another nation. For the Israelites, then, it was not even questioned that when God redressed the wrongs done to his people, that he would do so in this life. For what other weapon is to be found in the arsenal of the oppressed against the oppressor when revolt is not an option? An appeal to divine vengeance was the final court of appeals for the Israelites suffering under the boot of a seemingly all-powerful oppressive force such as Babylon. What could possibly move the ostensibly immovable rock of Babylon except the unstoppable force of the living God who created the world and all the powers therein? What is implicit by these curses is the appeal to the other to act. This is no small point of theology. Indeed, this is the heart of Wolf's view that the belief in divine vengeance is the only hope for a world free of personal revenge. It has been observed that these imprecations are never accompanied by personal acts of violence or revenge against one's enemies. Moreover, they demonstrably assume that retaliation and recompense are solely under the authority and are the duty of Yahweh alone. As Lamon writes, "...rather than portraying a picture of Israel's God as a vindictive deity," The psalmists picture God as profoundly and unflinchingly just, a status that necessitates some form of punishment for those who upset the right order that God has established. Thus, pleas for God to act violently are essentially faithful statements about the ultimate outcomes of God's righteousness. The psalmists leave the judgment up to God, putting down the swords, nets, and clubs, and lifting up their voices in prayer. End quote. There is no instance in the Psalms where the psalmist prayed for permission to take revenge on his own enemies by his own hand, but rather God is always appealed to as the avenger against the unjust. There are other grammatical reasons to adopt this view of divine judgment as well. Lessing observes that the statement, I will curse, in the promises of Yahweh to his people always come from the Hebrew word a'adar, which is an imperfect call verb, but when the same verbal form is used in Israel's cursing texts, such as Deuteronomy 28, it appears a call passive participle. This is important for Lessing, who sees Yahweh as an active performer in vengeance, while Israel is passive, only acting through petition. Imprecation in the New Testament For those concerned with the curses found in the Old Testament and who have been convinced that no such execrations are to be found in the New Testament, a brief comment shall be made to disabuse them of such a conviction. Not only does the New Testament not denounce such maledictions, but it actually endorses and repeats some of them. In Acts 1.20, Peter combines curses found in Psalm 69.25 and Psalm 109.8 when he explains why the brutal death of Judas, the betrayer, was assured, then later curses Simon Magus by saying that his money will perish with him in Acts 8.20. 
In Acts 23.3, Paul asked God to smite the chief priest. In fact, he appears to take it even further when he pronounces those who present another gospel in Galatians 1.9 and who do not love the Lord in 1 Corinthians 16.22 as anathema. This is the same word used by the Septuagint to describe those put under the ban during the conquest of the land, a statement of utter annihilation and destruction. They are, th uh, they are those who are to be cut off from the land of the living. Thus Paul is quite literally saying that he wishes them to be cursed to death for their sin. More relevant for the discussion here is the vision of the destruction and the fall of the eschatological Babylon in Revelation, where John sees seems to have no issue showing that God is still in the business of judging with violence those who use violence to oppress and harm the church, such as Revelation 18.6 and 20, for a cross-reference, see Jeremiah 51.48. In fact, Jesus himself did not shrink in the face of evil, but curse cities for their lack of repentance in Matthew eleven twenty to 24 pronounce woes on all manner of religious hypocrisy in Matthew 23, and overturn the money-changing tables that were preventing true worship in the temple, Matthew 25 and John 2. So far from the New Testament maturing beyond the brutish Old Testament ethic of divine vengeance, it is still a vital part of the canon of the early church. Application for the Church Throughout the history of the Psalter, the imprecatory psalms have always been included within the canon. Not only did the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible include them, they were included in the Septuagint Psalter, as well as the Psalters found within the Dead Sea Scrolls. It is not only modern times that some of them have been left out. That the body of believers down throughout the centuries have found value in these psalms and included them in their scriptures should cause pause to any who wish to jettison them or regulate them to a subordinate canon within the canon. Quote, Christian worship tends to be all triumph, all good news. Even the confession of sin is not a very awesome experience because we know the assurance of the pardon is coming. It's printed in the bulletin. And what does that say to those who at the moment know nothing of triumph? They are muffed about it, somehow. That their faith hasn't been strong enough to grant them success? That the whole business is a fraud? End quote. We must remember that the cries of lament and the imprecations are not from the lips of the untroubled saint living in the lap of luxury, but the poor, the needy, and the oppressed. De Classe Walvert asks even more pointedly, quote, what if a church member has been gang raped, end quote. Surely the simplicity and clarity of the question is enough to shock the church into imprecation, not to personal vendetta, but a calling on the covenant God to stand with his people, to justify them, and to mete out justice for the horrors of such real and unabashed malevolence. McCain writes, quote, In the face of monstrous evil, the worst possible response is to feel nothing. What must be felt is grief, rage, and outrage. In their absence, evil becomes acceptable and commonplace. End quote. Brueggemann wonders if these psalms will only find a home among those who have been personally brutalized. 
But surely the church can grieve together as our brothers and sisters are raped, tortured, and killed around the world and call out to God for justice and to throw off the shackles of oppression. As Babylon was portrayed as a destroyer because of her bloodthirst and willingness to brutalize infants in the womb and without, surely the church can sing the praises of God that he will mete out justice on those who would still seek to do the same to our children under the deceptive moniker of choice and personal liberty. For is this not a more vile evil than performing such carnage in the heat of battle? Yet, what would an, an average American Christian think if their pastor stood in the pulpit with their hand on the Bible and called on the violent vengeance of God against the abortion clinic, the human traffickers, and the jihadists who hunt down and kill our brothers and sisters? Would we shudder to think we were reverting to the inquis inquisitorial days and times of religious intolerance and war gone by? However, Brueggemann goes so far as to wonder if true forgiveness is even possible without a genuinely articulated hatred of evil. For if it is only when we give our, give, uh, grieve over our hatred to God to allow him to judge for us that we are freed from the cycle of violence and revenge and are able to forgive in the face of oppression. There is a price to forgiveness, however, a weighty and troubling cost. The cost is dying to ourselves to live to Jesus, to leave the problems of evil and sin, vengeance and hatred at the very foot of the cross of Christ. It is there that our sins, the dictators and mine, are addressed by the wrath of God, and only after by his grace. The price is the creature recognizing the creator as the only holy and righteous judge and to agree when the Lord says, vengeance is mine, and to leave it at that. God has promised to bless and God has promised to curse. Who are we to try and usurp his prerogative in either? This balance is seen in the reaction of Peter to Simon Magus mentioned above. Although Peter effectively called down the wrath of God to end the earthly life of Simon, he only expected it in the case of continued sin. Peter followed the curse with a call to repent and to turn to the Lord. Repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. End quote, Acts 1.22 Peter gives us a case study in how the church can innocently but effectively use imprecation to call out the sin and evil of the world which seeks to assault the name of God and oppress his people, while handing over all vengeful action to God alone. Peter's role is not executioner, but evangelist. We are to call down God's justice on the evils of the world, but to, in love, warn people to flee the coming wrath and to gain new life by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. An Israelite could call for the bashing of an infant of Babylon as a sign of God's judgment for the horrendous oppression of God's people. But should that same Israelite ever come across such a child in need, he was to tenderly wrap him, bandage any wounds, and sing him sweet songs of the gracious work of God while delivering him home as safely as possible. Conclusion The problem of imprecation in the scriptures is not a new problem and will need special attention from the church as long as there are wicked and violent men in the world. 
Yet rather than suppress them into the shadows or dismiss them as ethics of a bygone age, the church should rejoice in what they tell us about the God that we worship. God is not dispassionate to the pleas of his oppressed people. He does not turn a blind eye to injustice and tyranny, nor does he ever take sides against the poor and the needy. He will act in judgment and wrath for those are the, quote, dark side of his mercy and compassion, end quote. He is not only a God who blesses his people, but will judge in righteousness and, yes, sometimes even violence to rescue them from the clutches of evil men. Wolf's complete statement is a helpful corrective to the docile and entitled church of the Western world. Quote, My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with man in the West, but imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate? Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of the suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the ideal will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of the, non, of the liberal mind, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship." End quote. Truly, there is a species of violence which is entirely worthy of worship. It just does not, indeed, must not, originate from us. The Apostle John records one of the choruses in heaven in Revelation. Quote, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of her servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. End quote. Revelation 19, 1b through 3. If perfected saints in heaven are just in their praise of God for his just wrath and destruction of the wicked, why would it be inappropriate for the church today? Let us rejoice that our God is holy, righteous, and mighty to save and will rescue his people from all bondage, especially the bondage of sin and death. Quote, then all the people say, Amen. End quote. Deuteronomy 27, 15c. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, feel free to email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com, visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, or by visiting the group page on Facebook. Again, you can become a sponsor by following the Become a Sponsor link on the blog or by finding the Freed Thinker Podcast on patreon.com. Before I sign off today, I wanted to remind you all of an upcoming Mentionables conference. This is going to be an awesome event, a really, really awesome conference with some great speakers and a debate between Ben Watkins of Real Atheology and myself on if God 
if the God of the Bible is the best explanation for suffering, check it out. It all started with a small-time dream. Hold a conference in a church. With a small budget, could we afford to bring in a Christian celebrity speaker? And with an ear to hear more than just the same canned messages, do we want to? With these two questions, The Mentionables were born. We found the best under-the-radar Christian apologists that we could find. Writers, podcasters, and bloggers. Their voice was small, but their message was huge. On May 18th and 19th, The Mentionables will be appearing in Greensboro. Head out to Greensboro Christian Church and hear this grassroots phenomena in action, featuring talks and a great debate. Head over to thementionables.org to get your tickets or call Greensboro Christian Church at 336-621-5226. The Mentionables. Small-time voices, big-time noise.